All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a terrific Friday morning show for you. It is the Friday of the May long weekend. We've got a beautiful holiday weekend coming up here. The weather forecast looks awesome, but those pandemic travel restrictions still in place. Police stepping up their checkpoints and roadblocks. We want to tell you everything you need to know now about where you can go, what you can do. And what the rules are, have a listen to this. This is Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday, reminding people that those travel restrictions are still in place. I'm here today on a normal day for Dr. Henry and Minister Dix to talk directly to you to reinforce that there are public health orders in place. There are travel restrictions in place, not to the beginning of the long weekend, but to the end of the long weekend. Okay, Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday. Let's start discuss with my guest now, Mike Farnworth. He's BC's Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. What is the main points, the main in- information that you want to get out to the public here as we get into this long weekend now? Uh, the travel restrictions uh, are still in place, and this is not the uh, the weekend to be uh, to be traveling. It's the weekend to to stay local. Um, there's going to be a lot more long weekends uh, later, you know, in the summer. Uh, and given what we're seeing in terms of the cases dropping uh, and people doing the right thing, um, you know, we, uh, we, we observe these travel restrictions and, and we'll be able to have a much better summer uh, later on. Okay, where will the police checkpoints be located? Um, well, where they have been is on uh, Highway 1 in the Boston Bar area. Uh, Highway 3 uh, in the Manning Park area, uh, Highway 5, the Coquihalla at the old uh, toll booth area, and then on uh, Highway 99 uh, in the, uh, the Lillooet area. Okay, and what can people expect if they, if they pass one of these roadblocks? Uh, well, uh, police will ask, uh, you know, for, for identification and the purpose of their, of the purpose of their trip. Uh, and if it's uh, non-essential, then they will be uh, asked to, uh, to turn around um, what we have seen is, is that uh, and they're, they're set up in, in places where it is safe to do that and that uh, uh, police uh, will be out enforcing it. And we've seen that uh, uh, police have indicated to us that they've had a very uh, positive people, been very respectful. Uh, people understand why they're out there and uh, uh, people do the right thing. Right. And essential travel, just to reinforce, is allowed. It's only non-essential travel that is banned. So if you're traveling for essential reasons and you can demonstrate that to the police officer, you'll be allowed to go on your way. You are absolutely. So you're going for medical appointment. If you're going to uh, to school, you are you are absolutely fine uh, to to travel. Has anyone Uh, non-essential recreational travel? Has anyone actually been fined or ticketed uh, at these roadblocks? Um, I believe that a couple of tickets have been issued, uh, but, uh, and the police have turned around vehicles, uh, and they have voluntarily turned around. And as in each of these, uh, these locations, there's signage well ahead uh, that also indicates the road check is up, uh, and if people should, are not doing uh, essential travel, they can turn around, and, and there's a, a, you know, they can turn around at an exit that's in that area. And so right from the beginning, we've said this isn't about ticketing per se, it's about making sure people do the right thing, and we have seen that. Okay, speaking of Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, we saw a release come out yesterday from the RCMP in Squamish announcing that there will be stepped-up operations along the Sea to Sky Corridor by police. What is the the purpose of that? Like, that's still within one 
That's not on a border of a health region or a travel restricted area. So why are they stepping up? And it's, and it's one of those things to remind people that uh, that you know, for example, we get a lot of speeding in that area, uh, and people seem to think that you know it's a it's a race to the uh, it's a race to uh, uh, to get to to Whistler or uh, other places, and so they'll have speed checks and they'll have drinking and driving checks, for example, or is it, is, is they can do that. Uh, plus, also in terms of. Uh, um, uh, Highway 99, um, uh, Lillooet, um, You know, the uh, there'll be uh, there'll be road checks in that area. So it's just a reminder to people. Uh, you know, don't travel outside your local area. Even at this point, uh, it's you know, it's Whistler's in the health authority. Now's not the time to go. Uh, the mayor of Whistler has uh, has told people not to go to uh, to uh, to that community. Yeah, okay, let me play another couple of clips here for you, Minister, from the Premier yesterday. Here's Premier John Horgan on why we need to stay close to home this weekend. Whenever there's been a long weekend, we've seen an increase in case counts, which leads to an increase in potential fatalities, an increase in hospitalization. Okay, and here's the Premier as well talking about, okay, there's some confusion on this, and I, I, I want to get an explanation from you, Minister, and that's uh, the Premier here is talking about traveling to a, a cottage. Here's what he had to say. So stay local, stay close to home. If you have a cottage within your health authority, that, of course, is uh, absolutely okay by me. Okay, so he says if you have a cottage in your own health authority, it's okay by him to go there. But I believe you just said to me you should not go from Vancouver to Whistler. Yeah, yeah he's... Right, he's, so what's was, up with that? Okay, he was talking about, because uh, um, he's in Victoria, uh, about the Vancouver Island Health Authority, and referencing like on the Gulf Islands where many people do have cabins um, and that's in that that's in that uh, that's in that uh, it's quite local from Victoria to the uh, to the Gulf Islands that's what he was referencing the reality is right. this is that the health orders are in place uh, and people have been uh, have been uh, abiding by them and uh, uh, it's stay within your health authority stay local Okay, let me see if I got this straight. So you're saying if you're in Victoria, you can go to a cabin on the Gulf Islands. That's is that. That's what he was talking about. It's 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 local people. You know, it's just like how is that local? It's a, it's that short ferry from Sydney to uh, to Salt Spring, for example. Uh, but that's 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 what he was referring to. Um, you know, it's like in uh, if I live in uh, Port Coquitlam and I go uh, go camping uh, local up on uh, Burke Mountain, for example, or yeah. or uh, Golden Ears. Um, but what we've seen are people are doing the right thing, and so you know the uh, the people have been staying within their health authority. Uh, they've been staying local. We've seen more than twelve thousand uh, uh, camping reservations have been uh, have been cancelled. Uh, yeah. We've seen traffic down on the ferry terminals. Um, down significantly, uh, and uh, people are doing the right thing. We're seeing case counts come down. Okay, and just, the Premier is going to have on Tuesday uh, laying out what the plan is uh, for the restart. All right, well, just in the interest of clarity here and what the Premier is trying to tell the public here in advance of this weekend, he's, I, I heard him say quite clearly there that it's okay f by him if you've got a cabin or a cottage in your own health authority, it's okay, for by according to him, to go there. So if I like, if you've got a person who lives in Whistler... Or you got a person who lives in Vancouver and they've got a cottage in Whistler. That's in the same health authority. You know what? People right. should just people should use common sense and stay local, and that's what they should be doing. Well, did the premier and, get uh, it wrong? And and, that and that's this weekend. Um, you know, uh, that's what people need to do. Okay, but Mike, what I'm saying is, did the premier get it wrong yesterday when he said it's okay to go to a cottage in your own health authority? That's he, what he said. He also said stay local. 
He also said that numerous times that this is not the weekend to travel and it is the, it is it is to stay local and that's the message uh, and that's what people need to do and that's what people have been doing. All right, Minister, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. All right, that's Mike Farnworth there, the Solicitor General on the travel restrictions in place in advance of the long weekend. Let's check in with the official opposition now. Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson, pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Always good to be on. What do you think about what you just heard there? Well, I actually feel for the Solicitor General and the Health Minister because they're constantly having to to clean up the mess the Premier leaves after he shows up at a press event. Think back to Christmas when the Premier was talking about how he was going to celebrate Christmas with his family and how the Health Minister had to come back in and say, well, no, no, that's not really what he meant. I misunderstood what his question to me was. Now we're here with the long weekend. Um, you know, he's supposed to be a premier for the whole province. Um, it's great. That's a Vancouver Island, uh, perhaps, perspective or a Victoria perspective of what's local. As you say, if you live in Vancouver, you can go to Whistler, technically, based on what the premier is saying. Oh, yeah. uh, but let's remember, they combine northern health with interior health with this travel restriction, which means you can go from the Yukon border down to the, the Washington border uh, to your cabin, uh, theoretically, and, and that's okay by the Premier. You see, so, I, th- I find this very unfortunate that in advance of like a huge long weekend like this, especially with the weather like this, the Premier would, would say something like that. Let me play it again. Tim, have you got that final, that last clip there with Horgan on traveling to your cottage? Can we play that again, please? So stay local, stay close to home. If you have a cottage within your health authority, that, of course, is uh, absolutely okay by me. Like, you know, I mean, if you've got a, if you live in uh, Kelowna, and you've got a cabin in the Kootenays. That's the same health authority. Oh, absolutely. Right? My family, we have a cabin on the Chushwap. It's about 100 kilometers from my home in, in Kamloops. But there's a lot of people in Prince George, Quinell area that have uh, timeshares and cabins in Penticton and the Okanagan. Um, under these travel uh, rules, that's all considered local to the premier. Um, well, but now, but now, the, but now, I, but now, I got Farnworth saying, "Well, no, stay local." It's, he said it's okay to go from Victoria to the Gulf Islands, which I find weird too. But well, exactly, yeah, and th- and that's the confusion and 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 the apprehension people are having. The restaurant sector has even more confusion and apprehension about what Tuesday does or doesn't mean. Uh, Premier Horgan indicated one thing yesterday with the circuit breaker coming off. Dr. Henry has to step in and say, well, hang on, it's it's kind of going to be adjusted and amended, but it's not going to just be a rip the Band-Aid off. Um, it's, it's just mixed messaging all over the map. And frankly, it's whenever the Premier shows up to a press event, this happens. All right, welcome back. Talking about the long weekend travel restrictions with Liberal MLA Peter Millibar. Let's go to your phone calls. Al in Coquitlam. Hi. You know, Mike, when you played that clip of Oregon and Farmworth was listening to it, it reminded me of uh, when I was going to hang out with one of my friends, but I told them, told my parents I was going to go to the library. And they <laughs> said, and, and they're like, I thought you said you were going to the library. Uh, yeah, 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 but, and, and that's kind of how I felt when I listened to that. Well, we're trying to like you know think about what Oregon and cities like 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 you said like traveling from Victoria to the Gulf Islands like you know that's ridiculous. Listen, I don't envy their position at all. I'm not saying this is easy, and I have the answers. But like you say, having a plan, which they've said don't travel, right? And you know, and Oregon's like, no, it's fine. Just go and travel. But no, like, he said. 
Al, thank you for the call. And I think he was struggling to kind of cover for Horgan, who obviously screwed it up again. You know, he does this fairly frequently. He's got foot and mouth disease, this guy, sometimes. And, you know, you're trying to explain to people what you're allowed to do on maybe one of the busiest travel weekends of the year. And he says, it's okay to go to a cottage in your own health authority? What? Like, well, what? Peter, go ahead. I'm like, if I was, if people are living on, on Salt Spring Island and now they're listening to the Solicitor General telling people in Victoria, it's okay, come on over. How are they supposed to feel about that? Well, well, exactly. All he had to say was, look, we, it's been a hard five weeks of the circuit breaker. Uh, we understand that we need people to really stay, uh, focused on what they've been doing to this point through the long weekend. So we can keep driving the numbers down and then we can reevaluate it on Tuesday and have more information for you. He could have left it at that, but he tries to desperately be the most popular kid in the room every time. He's the premier of BC. Sometimes he has to say some stuff that's uh, not so palatable to everybody, but is actually clear and consistent with what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been saying. He can't wrap himself in in Dr. Henry's uh, public health advice and then contradict it every time he's at a microphone. Okay, let's go to Mary on the line in Vancouver Island. Hi, Mary. I seldom have ever agree with the Liberals, but I have to completely agree with Milibar and yourself, Mike. What is wrong with the pre- Premier? Which is what the Premier of Nova Scotia said to his population. What is wrong with you people? What is wrong with the Premier? Um, it's true. Every single time he opens his mouth, he puts his foot in it. And well, no, it's not okay. This also... Um, gives an advantage to folks who have money, who do have yeah, cottages right. and second homes. It's completely wrong. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mary, for that. Yeah, I mean, if you own a cabin on in the Gulf Islands, I mean, man, you got it. You got it made. And I, I was just kind of astonished to hear the Solicitor General kind of suggest that it's okay to to travel to the Gulf Islands. Like what? And at the same time, he's saying if you're in Vancouver, don't go to Whistler. I mean, what's what's the difference? Let's go to Chris and Poco. Hey, Chris. Good morning. Hi, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm I'm not traveling, and I agree with the with not having people travel for to their cottages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. The question that I have is, what about the the fact of charter rights, the charter right to travel? Um, this uh, restrictions are contravening our charter rights in order to travel. I'm like I say again, I'm not traveling, and I don't agree with the traveling, but this. Um, restrictions can possibly leave the police or government up for lawsuits for uh, contravening people's rights. Okay, thanks, Chris. Well, the government has said they've got a legal opinion on this, and it's and they feel that it is constitutional to set up these checkpoints because they're similar to the drunk driving checkpoints, right? You know, like uh, Peter Millibar, do you have any thoughts on that? Like they're saying right now, this the drunk driving checkpoints are legal, so how are these any different? But your thoughts? Yeah, my understanding is that it's overlaid with the, the public health orders, and because it's not restricting essential travel, it's deemed a little bit different. But again, uh, all of us taxpayers have paid for this legal opinion. Uh, no one's asking to see the bill for the legal opinion. We're asking the Premier to show us the legal opinion so we can have a better understanding of what he can, can actually do or not, and, and maybe um, put some peace of mind to people that do feel their charter rights are being violated. But he won't even show us the legal opinion he's working off of. Okay, thank you very much for coming on today. 
Great. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about mink farming in British Columbia. Now in the news again this week, there's a third outbreak of COVID-19 on a mink farm in British Columbia. That has now have some animal rights groups and other organizations calling for this fur farming industry to be shut down the Humane Society of Canada, the Fur Bearers Alliance, the BCSPCA, and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, all calling for BC mink farms to be shut down after a third outbreak of COVID-19. Let's discuss now with my guest, Alan Herskovici. He is a researcher with truthaboutfur.com former vice president of the Fur Council of Canada. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thank you for coming on. Hi there. Good to speak to you again, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. I'm, I'm sure this is not the news you and your organization were hoping to hear here in BC with another outbreak of COVID on, on a mink farm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, for sure, it's, it's you know, the farmers are obviously concerned. But, you know, from a public point of view, um, it's showing that the system that's been put in place is actually working. Um, the, these mink had not shown sickness, but there was random testing. In other words, they've been taking samples of mink, you know, from, you know, blood tests from mink from different farms systematically and testing. And that's how they found that there was one that tested positive. So immediately the farm was quarantined. And that's the way they've been controlling it successfully. Um, the other two cases we had in BC back in uh, 2020 and uh, the cases there's been in a number of states in the United States. There's in all, in the last year, there's been about 16 farms in the United States, and they use the same protocol. If the, if the mink is identified positive, the farm is quarantined. In other words, we limit any movement in and out of the farm and allow it to, to burn itself out, basically, because that's what happens. Uh, we've seen as COVID gets into a mink herd, it goes through quite quickly all of the mink in the same barn, and uh, within a week, they're mostly all have been affected. And within two weeks, um, uh, they all show antibodies and immunity. So it, it goes quite quickly. So that's why the, the quarantine is put in place to keep it from spreading. But, um, you know, the CDC in the United States, Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, whose name we know because of, you know, reporting about, you know, COVID in people, uh, has said they do not consider this to be a, a risk, a public health risk. It just has to be managed. And it's the same way it's being managed in British Columbia. Okay, so this is the third outbreak. When we see an outbreak like this with just one one animal testing positive on a farm, what happens to all the mink in that farm? Like you mentioned, there's a quarantine, but are the mink themselves, are they destroyed or euthanized? or what No, happens? not necessarily, because what okay. they've been seeing is um, most mink we've been seeing up till now, most mink may show no symptoms whatsoever. They don't ever really seem sick. Um, like with people... Um, what's being seen is it's mostly older mink, um, something that have been kept many years as breeders. Um, it's the older mink that sometimes get sick and, and some die. Um, but uh, many of the young mink never show any signs whatsoever and uh, come out the other end in a few weeks to have antibodies. To immune. The other thing that's important, too, is that um, there's now been a vaccine developed for mink in the United States. Wow. Uh, they're beginning vaccination in the United States, and we're hoping very soon in June hopefully to begin vaccinating, you know, mink in Canada. But wow. so, uh, you know, that will really be the best solution. Um, but meanwhile, I mean, I think you've got to give some credit to the farmers here because, you know, this is only the third case that's been found in over a year across all of Canada. Um, so it shows that the, the various, uh, you know, biosecurity uh, 
precautionary principle that's been put in place, the care that they're taking is, has been working because it's been very few cases. Okay, how many, um, you know, there's been three, three mink farms in BC affected. How many mink farms are there in British Columbia total? Uh, there's about 13, I think eight larger ones, you know, more serious ones, maybe 13 in all. Uh, and th- these are all more or less in the same region. Uh, and the, you know, so, but the, the care is being taken. Obviously, the farmers are, are concerned because they don't want to lose, you know, animals. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, as we know, in all these cases, it's, it's been transmitted from people. Uh, you know, and it's happening, you know, where we have a lot of COVID among human population, it can get through to the mink. And we've seen it that mink are susceptible to many respiratory viruses, even our, our flu, our regular flu. Farmers already have been careful, you know, like with, with much animal production, you always have to try to, you know, be careful to protect uh, the animals from okay. infections from wildlife or, or from people. Okay, so you're saying that this is evidence that the system is, is working in, in containing these outbreaks, but uh, the critics of the industry are saying actually the opposite. They're saying that this just shows that the government has failed to prevent these outbreaks on these farms and that therefore they should be shut down. We saw a coalition of groups here in British Columbia this week with some high-profile people, including an infectious disease specialist at Vancouver General Hospital, going public and saying, look, you know, the risk here is too great of spread of this this disease. Uh, These these farms should be shut down. Animal rights groups, of course, criticizing the industry as well. What do you say to them? Well, look, uh, with all, you know, the the animal rights groups, the groups like Fur Bears in Vancouver, I mean, they and the SPCA, BC, SPCA have been against fur in general, for years and years and years, there's nothing new there. I think it's just unfortunate and shameful, frankly, to be jumping on and spreading fears in a case like this to try to, you know, promote their own agenda, which is they happen to be against fur. That's their right. Nobody's forced to wear fur. Um, but that's a long way from talking about trying to, you know, shut down an industry. When we had swine flu uh, among uh, in the pork industry, we don't shut down pig farming. We don't stop eating pork. When we had, uh, you know, avian flu in, in, in chicken populations, we don't shut down chicken farms. We manage it. Uh, public health authorities, the agriculture department, with the farmers, manage it successfully. And that's what's being done here. But, of course, animal rights groups jump on it. The one, the one case of this latest press release that it's, that's, it's um, uh, concerning is that we see the Union of, of Indian Chiefs has jumped in here. And uh, I hope they understand um, what they've gotten involved in, who they've gotten in bed with, because, uh, you know, these same animal rights groups uh, are against hunting and trapping as well, which is important to many, you know, First Nations communities. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I, I wonder whether they really understand what they've gotten into. And, and they're mentioning that, you know, they don't do fur farming, and that's true. First Nations don't generally do fur farming, although there are some Métis fur farmers. But, you know, the Cree in, in James Bay, Quebec, uh, in the past, did have a pilot project of fur farming some years back. But that's neither here nor there. Um, nobody's forced to, to wear fur, to buy fur. Um, and and the, the experts, uh, you know, uh, like Dr. Fauci and the CDC uh, and the Canadian Public Health do not consider that we ha- that, that, that that this is a public health. What do yeah. you say? What do you say to the the critics of the industry who say that it, the industry is inhumane, that it is unconscionable to keep these animals in confined small cages for their entire lives, not allowed to roam outside, not allowed to do the things they would do in their in the nat- the natural environment, like running around or swimming or making nests or finding finding mates in the wild. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What do you say to well, all the criticism? Well, yeah. well, well, look. I mean, that's the criticism that these groups are making of all animal agriculture now. Of course, 
Um, there's been lots of research. Mink are well on farms. Anybody who claims that they're being treated cruelly or that they're suffering has clearly never been on a mink farm uh, and either doesn't know the truth or is not telling the truth. I've been on many mink farms in Canada, the States, and Europe, and, you know, mink are well. These are not wild animals. That's another thing that's a misunderstanding. They'll always say the animal rights groups, they're keeping wild animals in cages. These are not wild wow. animals. Uh, mink have been domesticated, have been raised on farms in Canada for over 100 years. Um, they're significantly different than, than wild mink. Uh, you know, they're twice the size. They're not as uh, ferocious. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they've been raised on farms in these pens, and, and they thrive there. Now, they don't have as much room to roam, that's true, but they have plenty of room to move around. Uh, they also don't have to worry about predators. They also don't have to look, worry about finding dinner. They also don't have to worry about certain diseases in the wild. It's always a trade-off when we domesticate animals. There's a balance. Um, but to claim that mink are being raised cruelly is simply not true. Okay, so when you say that for someone who has said that this is a cruel industry, that those are people who are who have not been on a mink farm. So Dr. Sarah Dubois, who is a chief scientific officer with the BCSPCA this week, said that she has been on these farms. She has seen the conditions firsthand. And she says this week, I can attest that the practices are inherently inhumane. So that's her, what, that's her opinion. I had, that's her opinion, clearly. I'm not going to yeah. say she's a liar, but I've been, I said, on many farms, a mink are in good condition. You know, uh, there's codes of practice, uh, which have been developed by veterinarians, animal scientists, animal welfare people. I've developed these codes of practice like there is for other animal agriculture in Canada, uh, the same. These are the codes against which uh, the farms are evaluated. BC mink farms are licensed by the BC Department of Agriculture. They are inspected annually, at least annually you know, by, by Department of Agriculture authorities to be sure that the codes of practice are being followed. But aside from that, let's remember that mink farmers have every reason to ensure that their mink are getting excellent care and nutrition because that's simply the only way uh, that you can raise, you know, good quality fur that you need yeah. to compete in the market. And Canadian mink uh, is always in the top, top prices. We're not a major producer on a world scale. But our producers, our farmers produce mink that gets the highest prices always. And that's because it's the best quality. And you only get that by okay. providing excellent care to your animals. So aside from the fact that mink farmers are people, I don't think people understand how some of these criticisms and the things that are said so blithely, how insulting and hurtful they are to the real people. You have family farms in B.C. They're working to protect their animals, you can be sure. And it, yeah. it, it's frankly, you know, quite shameful uh, the things that are just being said. I don't think we could speak against any other group of people, you know, so blithely making these kind of accusations, uh, you know, as if these people are immoral, these farmers, these farm families. Uh, okay. Care very much. Alan, thank you for coming on the show once again today. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Mike. And if nothing else, that gives us a chance, this, this situation, to, to talk a little bit about mink farming that people often don't understand. Sure. Uh, Absolutely. No, so I want to get both sides of it. That's Thanks. the good side of it, yeah. All right, welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Alan Herskovici from the Fur Council of Canada. Let's get the other side of it here on mink farming in B.C. Rebecca Bretter is an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I know you heard that interview. What did you think? Oh, yeah, I did. And uh, I can't believe that he's accusing of critics like fur bears and BCSPCA and myself that it's shameful that we're spreading this fear about COVID-19, the link between COVID-19 and fur farms. What is absolutely shameful is that this industry and this government is putting the human population at risk 
a further risk of another pandemic just because of this inherently cruel and dying industry. It is unbelievable. I mean, keeping thousands of animals in close quarters, like the mink farming industry does, is ground zero for another pandemic where viruses can and have spread between animals to people. It's not, we know this, it's a fact, it's happened, it's, it, it just happened now. There's yeah. a reason why France, UK, Ireland, Slovakia, Norway, and other countries have implemented an immediate phasing out and an eventual outright ban of fur farming. It is absolutely, I mean, I was infuriated when I heard that. I, I'm not going to lie, because that is what's shameful. It's not that we're spreading this fear. It actually happened and is happening. And let me just address another point about, you know, sure. the ethics of it. And when Alan was talking about how, oh, well, these men, you know, they're treated well. They don't have to worry about food. They have room to move around. And there's nothing inhumane about this industry. Well, I encourage your listeners, go online just Google how these mink are kept. They are kept crammed in wire cages. There's no grass under their feet. There's nothing natural about this environment. They die by either being gassed to death or electrocuted. I'm sorry if there are kids in the car, but they, these animals are killed by being electrocuted through their anus. So if that is something that you call humane, then we obviously have a very different uh, uh, idea of right. what humane is. Okay, the Rebecca, other, Rebecca, yes. Sam, I just want to squeeze in a couple of phone calls here from a couple of people who are waiting here, so let's sure, do that sure. real quick. Rick on the line in Delta. Rick, what do you think? Go ahead. Well, i tell you my experience. On one occasion, I was trucking for a friend of mine. I took Phil into a uh, mink farm in Langley, South Langley, yeah. and as I drove by where they were warehoused, you know, it was like they're kept in boxes marginally larger than a mandarin orange box. It's absolutely disgusting uh, that they live their lives in these wire boxes. And, you know, COVID-19 aside, that this guy would talk about morality or ethics is a joke. Okay, it's, well, thank, it's, thank, it's you for, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, I, I guess, I don't know, it is a disturbing picture that you paint, obviously, Rebecca, but, you know, I guess... How far would you take it though? Like, would you set, would you shut down like all animal husbandry industries, like you know, chicken farms, pig farms, cattle, cattle? Like, would you, <laughs> I'm you, not going to go I, down that rabbit hole. Well, now, I, mean, Mike. But, I mean, but I, I mean, like at some point, I guess you have to go down that rabbit hole because it's kind of like, are we going to pick and choose which industry, which animal industry should be shut down and which should be allowed to operate? No, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I mean, what I am going to say is that we're talking about the mink farming industry right now. Yeah and the fur farming industry, and that's what has to be shut down. We have evidence that it's a grave danger to human health, let alone the ethics about keeping animals and torturing them their entire lives. So, uh, but what I do want to say is that yeah. I do appreciate how this could come across that we're insulting these people, that we're insulting these farmers, as Alan said. We're not. Yeah. My intention is certainly, like, I'm sure that uh, obviously these people have families. Obviously, these individuals who are working on these farms think that they're doing some good. And I'm not saying that those individuals are bad people, even though I don't really understand how you could do that type of work uh, where you're literally torturing an animal. But it's the industry itself. That has to just be outright banned. It was starting with a, with a phase-out because it would be unrealistic to say as of tomorrow, you know, you're all out of work. 
So it, it's just, that, that's the way it has to be. It, it's, society, we're evolving into realizing that there are much better, there are many right. alternatives to fur. There's no need to be torturing animals to wear fur anymore. Okay, Rebecca, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the BC cruise ship industry now. Cruising shut down in Canada at the moment, but American cruise ships getting set to sail again. Will cruise ships bound for Alaska continue to stop at BC ports, especially Vancouver and Victoria? Not under the terms of the Alaska Tourism Restoration Act. That bill has now easily passed both houses of the U.S. Congress, it will now go to the desk of President Joe Biden. If that bill is signed into law, it would allow Alaska-bound cruise ships to sail straight to Alaska and not stop, as required under law right now, at a foreign port, notably B.C., Vancouver, Victoria, Nanaimo, Prince Rupert. It's got a lot of people concerned for the cruise ship industry in our province. Let's discuss now what a great guest I've got for you. Jesse Keel is a member of the Alaska State Senate, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Senator, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. There's a lot of people who are happy in Alaska with that this bill is moving forward here so easily through both houses of Congress, now going forward to the desk of U.S. President Joe Biden. I know you support this uh, bill. Can you tell me how this bill will work and why you support it? Well, I I do support it very much. It's uh, it, it was it was an incredibly heavy lift, uh, and honestly, when I passed a resolution through our our state legislature here in Alaska, um, calling on the federal government to do this, we uh, it was a long shot. We didn't we didn't give it great odds, um, and and our congressional delegation and the Washington State congressional delegation really uh, came through. Um, so the the bill actually uh, has changed a little bit since it first got introduced. Uh, the very first version said just. Just for the time of the pandemic, and just while Canadian waters are closed, for the purpose of Alaska law or U.S. law, excuse me, we're going to consider uh, Alaska a foreign port. Uh, the one that came through actually didn't do that. It said uh, uh, same time limits, right? Only during the pandemic, and only while Canada's waters are closed. Um, we're going to email Canada on the way by, and that counts as a stop. Which I, I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but, uh, but you can see, um, you know, that fixing the problem. Uh, temporarily while this pandemic's going on was really important. And I don't think I have to tell anybody in, in BC, uh, what an important economic, uh, engine all those passengers are, um, for, for local economies where they stop. But, uh, but we, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't get, uh, the stops out of Transport Canada. We couldn't get, uh, changes in, in that closure. Uh, so we had to had to do a temporary workaround. I'm just as happy as can be that our congressional delegation managed to do that, and and I very much hope President Biden will sign it. Okay, yeah, people are happy in Alaska. In BC, though, there's a lot of worry about how this could affect the BC domestic cruise ship industry if these if these ships uh, stop uh, do not stop any longer in Vancouver and Victoria. Like right now, when do, when could cruise ships start sailing to Alaska again? Like right now, they're not sailing, right? But they could start again fairly soon. Is that correct? They they they've started selling tickets. Um, wow. And and the earliest sailings are are at the very end of July. Uh, I think the you know the the August sailings are are most likely. So they'll extend that shoulder season that usually ends about the second week of September one more week. Um, the the hurdle now 
that they have to clear, well, there are two. The, those, you know, giant cruise ships uh, have to get two things. They have to get out of mothballs where they've, you know, put plastic crap over every single vent so they don't get bugs in them, and they've, you know, drained all the water lines and all that stuff. They've got to recharge the ship and get her ready to roll again, get their crews over. Um, but the other thing they have to do is get uh, the Centers for Disease Control uh, approval. And, and we have been planning for that here at our Alaska ports, and Alaska health authorities uh, have been working on that. Uh, we are starting to get more and more better guidance from the CDC. Um, and, and I am uh, pretty optimistic that with uh, fully vaccinated crews and yeah. fully or very close to fully pa- vaccinated uh, passenger list and reduced capacity, uh, they'll get approved to, to sail here uh, the second half of the summer. Okay, speaking to Alaska State Senator Jesse Keel, and with cruise ships set to start sailing to Alaska again very soon, under the existing law, those ships were required to stop at a port in British Columbia, right? Like they were required to stop in Vancouver or required to stop in Victoria. And this has been a tremendous boon to the tourism industry in our province. Now, if this bill goes forward, those ships will be allowed to bypass BC, right? They would just go straight to Alaska. They wouldn't have to stop anymore, correct? Yeah, for for this yeah. summer and and while Canadian waters are closed, um, yeah. and, and you know that's a shame, uh, Mike. I, frankly, the the Canadian stops are part of the hook, right? They're they're part of what these ships advertise to passengers. Uh, Americans want to want to see those Canadian ports, and and for, uh, overseas travelers want to see those Canadian ports. So we're we're all d- down a little bit for for Canada's waters being closed during the pandemic. We'd we'd all like. I think to to see those stops resume, um, but it's got to be possible. Uh, and right now, the, the Canadian authorities aren't allowing that, so we had to do what we needed to to get a, a part of the season this summer. You know, we we have a lot of very small communities where cruise ships stop here in Alaska, uh, and and summertime economies are really pretty dependent. Those folks can't go a second year without any significant yeah. number of customers. They just can't make it. What can you say to the, our listeners here in British Columbia who are worried about this situation? As you've said a couple of times, this is meant to be a temporary measure that when the pandemic is behind us, hopefully these, these cruise ships begin stopping at BC ports of call once again. They would stop in Victoria and Vancouver again. But can you, re, can you assure our listeners that this is definitely temporary and it would go back to the old system when this is all over? Because I think the fear is that Maybe this just becomes permanent and BC gets left behind. Well, I don't think that's likely, Mike. The, the Alaska okay. Tourism uh, Recovery Act has a, has a hard stop on it. Um, uh, February, is it 2 or 22, whatever that current date of the uh, Canadian waters closure end is. Yeah. Um, so it, it's got a bunch of contingencies. It's over when uh, y'all open up your waters. It's o- over when the pandemic's over. It's over uh, in February of 22. First of those to happen, um, we go back to our existing laws. So so mm-hmm. it's it's pretty temporary. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of a bunch of issues that we've got with our, our shared border. Um, you know, I represent Haines and Skagway, uh, which come right up against a little sliver of B.C. on the way through to Yukon and Alaskans uh, use those highways to get 
you know, to the rest of Alaska. Um, and, uh, of course, travel through. Um, and, and, you know, I represent the capital city here in Juneau. Uh, and, and, of course, all, all my legislators from the rest of the state, the vast majority of them, uh, they come down through Canada on their way to and from the session. They, they've been allowed as essential workers to make that transit. But there's a, a, a lot of folks who, who really would like to get through Canada, either innocent passage straight through to Alaska uh, or folks who own, <clears throat> own property in Canada. And we've, we've done a lot of work with, um, with provincial governments. Uh, you know, the, i got to tell you, Sandy Silver, the premier of Yukon, uh, has been a great ally, always with an eye toward um, toward safety. You know, he's he's not open to any ideas that really let Alaskans go hang out in Yukon. Um, but but to get through uh, in Innocent Passage, he's he's really uh, taken it. To, I forget what your Council of First Ministers is called. I've got the name wrong. Um, we've we've reached out to Premier Horgan uh, and and uh, gotten some correspondence with his office. Um, not quite the advocacy that Premier Silver has, but uh, but you know a receptive ear. We need we, to, let me, to transport Canada. Let me uh, let me. Speaking of Premier Horgan, let me play a clip here for you, Senator, for your thoughts. When when this initiative first began to bypass BC ports, at least temporarily. Uh, the premier here was asked about that, and he didn't seem to think that this was much of a threat. He didn't even think that this would go through uh, the U.S. Congress. He just thought this was uh, just a blip on the radar screen. Play a couple of short clips here for you. Here is John Horgan here uh, under saying that this is just a blip on the way to going back to normal. Here he is. I'm confident that this, uh, this blip along the way is a result of frustration, quite frankly, by uh, Alaska that... Uh, that we're not having ships stopping in Canadian ports for very good reasons, and I think overwhelmingly British Columbians support that position. Okay, and here's our Premier also talking about the legislation that has now flown through both houses of the U.S. Congress. Here he is back in a couple of months ago saying that he didn't think that would happen. Here's the Premier. This uh, a proposed piece of legislation, and again, in the U.S. Congress, I think anyone who has spent any time watching the U.S. Congress knows that the likelihood of success on any number of endeavors is remote uh, in, in good times, much less in times of crisis. Okay, Senator Keel, we have seen this, this bill pass unanimously in both the Senate and the House. Do you think our, our Premier appears to have misread the situation? Would you agree? <laughs> Well, Mike, I'm I'm not going to handicap Canadian elections uh, or or what gets through your parliament uh, or or your legislative assemblies, but uh, you know I, I think that the the urgency of this uh, and frankly some really good work by our our federal legislators on the Alaska side here uh, in the U.S. Congress helped a lot. Um, you know, it's uh, it, <laughs> I, I don't know that I ever saw the risk in what we called technical stops um, yeah. where a ship called in port and nobody got on and nobody got off uh, and we we've just temporarily met the legal requirements I, I don't think you transmit much covid by throwing a line and throwing it back but uh, but I could be wrong um, I'm, I'm not the doctor uh, and 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 what I do know is that in politics uh, and government uh, when when people are really hurting uh, don't don't rule out their advocates to do something uh, unexpected. I told you at the beginning, we thought this was kind of a long shot when the bill got introduced. So in that sense, I, I agreed with them way back when. Um, but, but we had a problem we had to get fixed. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, the, my congressional delegation, my federal delegation, we are different parties. We got a lot yeah. of differences, but they came through. They came through on this. 
Okay. Senator, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Mike, I really appreciate you and, and your listeners, and thanks so much for having me. Call anytime. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about the cruise ship industry in British Columbia, cruise ships bound for Alaska set to sail once again, but it looks like they'll be skipping B.C. ports, at least for now. You heard my conversation there before the break with Alaska State Senator Jesse Keel. They are ready to ha- they are happy to welcome visitors back to Alaska, and they'll be bypassing BC ports if this law goes through. It looks like it will. Let's check in with Rob Fleming now, Minister of Transportation in the BC government. Very pleased you could jump on. Hi, uh, Minister. Hi, Mike. Uh, Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I know you heard my interview there with the state senator from Alaska about this bill going yeah. forward. I played a clip there from from Premier John Horgan from a few weeks back where he expressed doubt this would. This would become law. It looks like it will become law. Did the B.C. government underestimate this? Well, I think uh, what you heard uh, the state senator say is is similar to uh, the assessment that the premier and almost everybody in Canada had at the time, uh, right up to uh, the the hill in Ottawa, that uh, it was a long shot. Uh, And uh, the speed at which the bill went through, I think, caught everybody by surprise. But uh, I was happy to hear the uh, state senator reinforce the message that Alaska wants to do business with Canada. They just want to take care of a tourism season for themselves right now. And uh, also that there's lots of opportunities for cooperation on how that happens. The United States and other countries are all reopening their economies at different paces. Uh, They're ahead of us, of course, in the vaccine race a bit, but they're also taking a different approach that maybe Canadians wouldn't necessarily agree with. I don't know if people want to pack in with 50,000 people to watch a Blue Jays game right now, but, uh, you know, so it's, so it's different, and that's not a criticism, it's just saying it's different, and um, the request that the two U.S. Senators from Alaska have sent to the Prime Minister is, is one that we're working with uh, my counterparts in Ottawa on, which is around that request for technical stop. So there could be some significant updates here, but uh, yeah, the speed at which the bill passed did catch us by surprise, because no sooner were we asked to consider some things, uh, including you know, things that haven't been finished yet by the American uh, Center for Disease Control, then uh, then the bill went through uh, right. both houses of Congress. And yeah. the, the technical stops idea it would be mm-hmm. where a cruise ship could pull into, let's say, the port of Vancouver, drop anchor, but yeah. no one would get on or off the ship in order to prevent any kind of concerns about COVID spread, and that would have met the technical requirement under the law for a stop in a BC port on en route to Alaska. And you heard the state senator reinforce that idea, that this was an idea they liked. He also yeah. said, though, that they have they don't seem to have gotten much response on this from Canada. Should should Canada not have been more assertive uh, in in taking up that idea? I think... We've got uh, a minute left. Heard- yeah, what I heard from the, the Prime Minister, like, much earlier in the second wave, you know, we, we were we were on your show talking about how B.C. might have 3,000 new COVID cases a day, not not too many weeks ago. And the Prime Minister clearly put a, you know, a, a forecast saying, look, I don't see cruise ship activities happening until February of 2022. Things have changed, and I think uh, the, the request from the Alaskans for a response uh, needs to be considered in light of those changes. Uh, and... Look, we, we have nothing against uh, Americans trying to get to another part of America right now through our waters. That's the conversation we're having with Ottawa. And we also feel really confident that, uh, and he heard the state senator say this, Canada and, and Victoria, Vancouver, Prince Rupert, th- those are important parts of how they market. And the Norwegian and Dutch cruise lines, when they start selling uh, Alaskan cruise packages again, they're going to want uh, Canadian stops to be part of it. Right. That's one of the most popular features of those cruises. Minister, thanks for coming on.
Okay, thanks very much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about one of Vancouver's oldest and most notorious unsolved murder files now, the Babes in the Woods case, as it came to be known. This is an absolutely heartbreaking case. In 1953, the skeleton remains of two young boys were discovered by a groundskeeper near Beaver Lake in Stanley Park. This is a murder scene that was absolutely astonishing and heartbreaking. The two young boys, believed by police to be age seven and eight, were found bludgeoned to death by a hatchet. They actually found the suspected murder weapon near the bodies. And they believed that the two children had been killed five years earlier, so possibly around 1948. This is a case that remains unsolved until this day. Police now hoping that historic DNA evidence from the victims could lead to a breakthrough in this case. I've got a great guest standing by for you, C.C. Moore, uh, the great genetic genealogy expert. But first, have a listen to this global news story here. And you're going to hear some, uh, this is going into the global news archives here. And you will hear the filming of a reenactment of the Babes in the Woods murders. Have a listen to this. The chief investigator was this man, Don McKay. He was a sergeant then. He also found the witness who had seen the trio. The first examination of the bodies showed the skulls had been shattered by a heavy, sharp instrument. This was the kind of weapon used in the murder. It's called a lather's hammer. It was found with the bodies and the shaft was broken just about here. This first photo shows the position of the two skulls and the children's shoes. The shoe of a woman was found beneath the remains of the girl. McKay believes he knows who did it. We did find enough evidence to be fairly sure, but not enough to convict. The faces of the victims were reconstructed from the skulls. McKay worked on the case for three years on his own time. What prompted you to put in so much time in this case? Well. I guess my wife would have, would agree that it was kind of an obsession. Okay, that's some archive audio there from Global News about the Babes in the Woods case, one of the oldest and most notorious unsolved murder files in Vancouver history. Those two young boys found dead in Stanley Park in the 1950s. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Cece Moore. Cece is a genetic genealogy expert. She's a founder of DNA Detectives, and she's worked on these cold case murder files with some great success. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Cece, it's nice to have you on again. Hi, thanks for having me back. Thank you, Cece, for being here. This is such a heartbreaking case, and a lot of time has gone by, to say the least more than 70 years since it's believed these two young boys were, were killed, but it, it doesn't make it any less disturbing or heartbreaking, I think. And I know you're, you're familiar with this case a bit, right? Is this one that you followed? I have, yes. And I just recently listened to a podcast about it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Is this a case where uh, a historic DNA evidence might, be, might lead to a possible solving of this case? Yes, if they are able to perform the analysis necessary for what we use in genetic genealogy, I'm quite sure they can solve it. That's really what it's going to come down to. Is the remaining DNA viable for this type of advanced analysis or not? 
Right. Now, for a murder scene this old, uh, going back so many decades, is it, pos- is it possible to, to secure viable DNA from, a, from a, 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 murder, a murder site and some of the evidence that's still preserved that, that much, that many years have, after that many years has passed? Yes, it definitely is. In fact, the DNA Doe Project, which works on Jane and John Doe cases like this one, uh, was able to help solve a case that was about 150 years old. Uh, a skeleton or remains were found in a cave, and they didn't realize how old that they were until they worked the genealogy, and it traced back to somebody born a very, very long time ago. And so if they can do it on that one, they can most certainly do it on this. We had just have to hope that the little bit of remains that was kept when the bodies were cremated is going to be enough and not uh, overly contaminated. Right. Wow, that's amazing. The identities of these two victims has never been identified. They did recover a suspected murder weapon at the scene. A hatchet was found in Stanley mm-hmm. Park way back then. They also found remains of a, a belt uh, near the the skeletal remains of these two two little boys, uh, is it possible they could get some DNA off evidence off of the murder weapon? It's possible, although I think it's probably less likely after it was out uh, in the elements and then stored all these years. Now that's not to say it's impossible, but it's less likely than right. the actual bones that were saved. Can you talk a little bit about the process that's used here when you have this historic DNA that's been preserved from an old murder, a cold case murder site? What happens with that DNA? How do investigators use that DNA to, to crack a case? Well, in order to do investigative genetic genealogy, they're going to need to get hundreds of thousands of genetic markers out of it. And so we look at something called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. I think in this case, they're trying to do whole genome sequencing. Uh, you can do one of two processes, either the microarray SNP genotyping or look at the entire genome. When it's contaminated like human remains tend to be, then usually the whole genome sequencing works better. So I think from what I read, that's what they're trying to do right now. But you do get a lot of bacterial contamination and degradation. So it can be challenging to get down to that human DNA that we need. Right. It sounds like investigators here are hoping uh, hoping that DNA samples from the two victims here can be put into a, a public DNA database such as GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, and then hopefully they could find or identify a living relative of the victims. This is what investigators hope here. How does that work? Like Je- you're very familiar. Mm-hmm. You're an expert on GEDmatch and these and this DNA yeah. technology. How does that work? So it's typically more than one relative that we would work with. We're usually using, say, a dozen or 20 of the top matches in order to try to find patterns and commonalities among them, overlaps, find how all those pieces fit together. And then we can piece by piece reconstruct the family tree of that unknown individual. So in this case, the two little boys. Uh, My understanding is they share a mom. So you'd be trying to identify the mother from the matches they had in common, and then their fathers would be the matches they don't have in common. And so we reverse engineer the family tree of these unknown little boys based on who they're sharing DNA with in the GEDmatch and or family tree DNA databases. 
Right. And once you've identified that, so let's say they're successful in that and they're able to identify perhaps a living relative of these victims or constructive family tree, how can investigators then use that information to to solve a, solve a, a case, a murder case? Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, from my understanding, is most likely the mother was the perpetrator, unfortunately. So if they can identify the little boy's family tree, then they probably can identify their killer. Um, in order wow. to confirm it, they're going to have to try to find as close of a relative as possible. So say they only have second, third, fourth cousins in the GEDmatch database. Once it's narrowed down to a closer family, they're going to have to hope there's maybe a living half-sibling out there or maybe a niece or nephew, something like that. And they would use that closer relative then to confirm or refute their theory about who it is. Yeah, that's amazing. And the power of this technology is astonishing. And and you've done some of the the groundbreaking, cutting-edge work on this. Have you ever heard of cases being solved that go back this far, like more than 70 years? Like, what's the oldest cold case that's been solved using this technology to date? I think our oldest case so far is 1962 for a suspect case, so a killer or rapist. I just helped solve a case from the early 1960s that is also a a little boy case. It hasn't gone public yet, but it's doable. You know, there's things you have to take into consideration when you're working with DNA that old. It does affect the matching and how much DNA you see shared with relatives. It is doable. So this would be a record if it's able to be solved through investigative genetic genealogy. But I don't think it's a huge stretch. Okay, that's amazing. So that would make this one, if they were able to solve this case, it would make it the, the oldest cold case that was solved by this technology? Is, would it be fair to say? I would say other than those remains that were found in the cave that DNA Doe Project worked on, that was a little bit different type of case. Mm. That one probably qualifies as the oldest but this would certainly be right up there. All right, welcome back to my discussion with C.C. Moore, genetic genealogy expert. She's the founder of DNA Detectives, and we're talking about one of Vancouver's most notorious unsolved murder cases, the Babes in the Woods case, as it came to be known, the skeleton remains of two young boys believed age seven and eight, discovered in Stanley Park way back in 1953. And investigators now hoping preserved DNA evidence in this case could help solve this murder case nearly 70 years later, which is absolutely amazing. Cece, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the great work you've done here and just in the five minutes or so we've got left. And people will be very familiar with the case you were involved with. And that's the case of a young British Columbia couple, Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook of Vancouver Island, who were found brutally killed in uh, Washington State in 1987. And you were a critical in the part of the investigation here that using, again, preserved DNA evidence that led to the conviction of a truck driver, William Earl Talbot. A lot of people familiar with that case. Can you just remind the listeners of your involvement in that one? Sure. That was the first case where I used the techniques I developed for adoptees to help law enforcement identify a killer. And we were really fortunate in that case. There's a fantastic detective, Detective Jim Scharf, who was very forward thinking. So that was only the second case worked after the Golden State Killer case. We jumped right in and we were so lucky. We got two close matches in GEDmatch 
they were about second cousin level, which is what we consider close matches. And they were related to the suspect on each side of his family. So one of them was a second cousin on his dad's side. And the other one was equivalent to a second cousin on mom's side. He was a half first cousin once removed, which shares about the same amount of DNA on average as second cousin. I was able to identify William Earl Talbot in only two hours after getting those match results. Now, that hasn't happened again since in the hundreds of cases I've worked. (laughs) So that was a really unique case. Yeah, no, that's incredible that you were able to put your finger on on this suspect. And, of course, he has now been... He's now been convicted of these te- these terrible crimes. Uh, what does that feel like when you're an investigator, you're on the cutting edge of this technology? I, I assume you're kind of sitting in front of a computer screen when you have this incredible moment when you know you've uh, identified identified the suspect here. What, what goes through your mind when you know that, I, boy, you think you've, I think I've cracked this here? Yeah, it's such an odd feeling, you know, very different from the feeling I get when I identify someone's birth parent or biological parent. And this was the first time I was looking at the name of a killer or who I thought was a killer. And it was such a strange realization to think that I was the only person in the world who likely knew what he had done except for him. So I wanted to quickly get that burden off my shoulders and pass it on to the detective in the case so he could investigate him. Right. And once you did that, what were the next steps in that case? Like, Because I believe what they had to do was try and get a, a current sample of this guy's DNA, right? So they kind of, what right. they went under, they followed him around, right? Yeah. Genetic genealogy is just a tip or a lead. It's as if someone called in a tip to Crime Stoppers. So police have to start from the very beginning, investigate that person, and then they have to collect DNA from them in order to confirm or refute my theory. Right. So they can't arrest someone based on genetic genealogy. So, yeah, they followed him. They surveilled him for quite some time before he he opened his truck door and a cup fell out on the ground. And so he accidentally littered, and it led to them being able to determine that he was indeed the killer. Right. So a cup fell out of it, out of his truck, and they were able to get a current DNA sample from him from that, and that was an exact match, correct? That's correct. So yeah. that they compare to their traditional law enforcement DNA profile. So that's, you know, completely separate from the type of profile that we create. Right. And how did you learn or find out that the police had, in fact, secured a current DNA sample from the suspect and it was an exact match from the DNA at the crime scene? Like, did the police phone you and tell you, look, we got him? Yeah, Detective Sharf called me up. He's a, yeah. just a wonderful, dedicated officer, and he was very good about keeping me updated on everything. Yeah. doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes I find out in the news, <laughs> so it was really nice for him to call me directly. Right, and I'm, I guess that didn't surprise you in, in some ways because you knew you had him, right? Yeah, yeah it didn't surprise yeah. me at all. This was what I consider a really high-confidence potential identification. If right. you can connect to both sides of someone's family, you know, that's pretty solid right just got a minute left here cc the power of this technology is incredible do you think we're going to see more more of these cases solved in the the years ahead Oh, yeah. Uh, I think we'll see thousands or tens of thousands of cases solved as long as no legislation is passed that bans the practice of investigative genetic genealogy and as long as the public stays supportive of what we're doing because we really need the public to to participate in this for us to be able to be successful. CC, it's awesome work that you do, and it's fascinating, too. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today.
Thank you for having me.